This is Robert Dillon, and welcome to the Help Me Understand podcast, a learning conversation designed to release trap wisdom into the system through a series of interviews with everyday awesome people. Hope you enjoy the ideas, questions, resources, and laughs that come with guests helping me to understand a wide variety of topics. Here we go. Today's guest is Mike Cackley. Mike is a PBL and SEL coach and a national faculty member for PBL Works, leading project-based learning workshops around the country and helping teachers make the shift to student-centered inquiry. His passion is inspiring educators to design SEL-infused PBL curriculum for all content areas and age levels. During his 15 years of PBL teaching, Mike has taught social studies, math, STEM, and STEAM classes. And Mike is convinced that we don't need to prepare students for someday, but that they should be doing meaningful work right now. Yeah, welcome to the podcast, Mike. It's great to have you. Thanks. It's great to talk to you, Bob. Yeah, and I know you've been doing a ton of work uh, really over the course of your career and getting kids excited about learning. And uh, I'm excited to talk about that and then also uh, making sure that we're taking care of uh, the whole child. So at some point in time, we'll really be talking about, you know, how do we get experiences for kids um, that are excellent? And then how do we make sure we're taking care of them as people as well? And I know you're doing some writing around that. So we'll uh, dive into that as we go. Uh, give me a little background about uh, kind of what led you down this journey and um, why you think this is such an important piece. Well, I've always been a teacher who believed in active learning and getting the kid kids busy and getting their hands working, but also their minds working. So just minds, just hands isn't enough. I want to combine the two. Yeah. And I think it's important. And when I think about active learning, uh, you know, I always took our kids out for service learning and they were doing stuff, but uh, you know, I always uh, talk to my teachers that there's before an event, during an event, after the event. And that's when we engage the mind a little bit and talk about some strategies where you've seen um, schools and teachers really get kids uh, engaged and their minds really fired up about learning. Well, I'm a big advocate of project-based learning. And so that's, of course, where my mind goes with this. And one of the things that we talk about when we talk about project-based learning, we usually start with the ideal graduate and having people kind of envision what they want the student to look like when they're done with their school or their class or grade level, whatever it may be. And we usually come up with these lists of topics that are mostly, I'd say 95% outside of content. And that's where we really see that uh, we want to teach the whole child. And I think in education, of course, we love jargon there's been a struggle to name these things. And so they've been called 21st century skills, the four C's, soft skills. And I, I'm not a big fan of any of those terms because they're not soft, they're very important, and they're not new. So 21st century skills doesn't make sense to me because cavemen need these skills. And so social emotional learning is the um, landing place where I've landed of what's the best term for these skills. Yeah, you know, and sometimes I think we think of social emotional learning as reactive. And I think the way you're framing it is that it's much more of a proactive thing, right? I know that many schools have these, like you said, portraits of a graduate. Uh, there's some, you know, great language on there. 
Uh, I worry that oftentimes that language doesn't transfer back to the work in the classroom. How are you making that mm. connection and helping folks to do uh, just that, turn their portrait of a graduate into reality? So that, that's a great point about how we, we talk about this stuff. And one of the things I love to say is, if we don't teach, practice, and assess these things, then we're lying to ourselves that we think they're important. And so that's, that's really, we have to be intentional in going to backwards designing planning, not just our content, but of these specific skill sets. So that is my message to teachers is that you have to plan for this and make it intentional in your lessons. And the other thing that I think uh, the social emotional learning, project-based learning, <clears throat> one of my concerns is that they feel like fads, like the pendulum has swung back from no child left behind of content, content, content to more of whole child approach. And what I want people to see is these aren't fads. These are good quality teaching that, that needs to last. Yeah, and I think that in education, we're always run for the new shiny thing. But there are some things that continue to kind of bubble up as essentials. Um, you know, when you kind of synthesize all these portraits of a graduate or all this language, you know, help me understand really what are the five or six things that really stick out for you. I know that these are vocal and they need to be adopted by local organizations and like this. What are the ones that really, really bubble up that you think are essential as we move forward? So I've um, tended to use the ones from Castle because uh, they're kind of a national leader of doing research on this stuff and they have five competencies and they are self-awareness, social awareness, responsible decision-making, self-management and relationship skills. And under those five broad categories, they have four to five bullet points defining what they mean. And they cover pretty much anything that anyone would think of as, hey, we need to teach this. It falls under one of those subcategories. Yeah, you know, sometimes uh, you mentioned measuring and assessment around these things. Um, how are you seeing measurement be effective around these things that aren't the easiest things to measure? They're not impossible to measure, but, uh, you know, it's easy for us to give a test, count the points, and do assessment that way. But um, these things you're mentioning, uh, a little more complex. How are you seeing schools effectively do that? Yeah, I think the key thing here is we have to define assessment better. I'm not talking about grading necessarily. I'm talking about assessment. And this assessment can be done by the teacher, can be done by community members, can be done by students themselves or by peers. And so a lot of the assessment is reflection. It's giving kids a rubric or showing them high quality work and asking them to self-assess and peer assess on how are they doing on the skill set. So it's less about grading and more about that reflective metacognition assessment. Yeah, I know that offline uh, you and uh, others and I have been talking about the importance of reflection and self-assessment. And um, I do think that that's an area that um, schools could learn a lot as they try to give kids an opportunity to really um, make their own judgments about where they are and where they need to go. Um, how do you see this linking up with some of the big pillars of project-based learning? Uh, where does this easily dovetail in? And then maybe where are some of the pain points? So one of my concerns about a lot of what I see online about social emotional learning is that I think some people are misusing it as, hey, this is a way to teach kids to 
manage themselves so they're better behaved and it becomes a classroom management tool. And they have kids doing yoga and meditation and things like that, which those are all fine and great. I'm not against any of that stuff. But I think they really emphasize that self-awareness and that self-management piece. And they neglect the responsible decision-making. And to me, if you want kids to learn these skill sets, self-management, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, then PBL, project-based learning, is the perfect vehicle. Because if you're a teacher who stands in front of the room and lectures all the time, how are kids going to develop relationship skills? They're not doing anything. If kids are only regurgitating content that is crammed on their throat, then how are they learning responsible decision-making? Where project-based learning puts students in the community, working with community partners, solving actual problems, and they get a chance to practice this stuff. They get a chance to screw up and make mistakes because they're learning. They get a chance to learn how to work with others in groups. And it's going to be messy at times, but kids aren't going to learn unless we give them the opportunity to, to actually do something. Yeah, I think you touch on a really important point there, Mike, is that we have to use our communities as resources in a much greater capacity. I mean, I know that my daughters um, have learned from a ton of different people in our community, from nonprofits, from a whole bunch of different organizations, and super powerful, right? Where kids actually have to interact with people beyond their teacher. Um, how, how have you seen some schools do this well? And maybe a couple of examples of projects that, you know, you really look to as uh, top-notch type, type of projects that have done some of this work. So there was a group of fifth grade classroom in Virginia, and they launched the Teachers Launcher Project looking at the oceans. And they launched it by having, they cut up a bunch of green plastic and stuff, decorated their room, like, and it was represented algae. And the kids came in and had to learn about all this algae all over on their beach at Virginia Beach. And it led them to look at the food chain. And as they moved up the food chain, they realized that there was not enough sharks because of overfishing of sharks. And that was causing this um, too much algae. And so leading the kids through this project, they did some research. They found out it's illegal to... Uh, fish for sharks in Virginia, but it's not illegal to buy shark products. So all restaurants were doing is buying sharks from people who were from Virginia fishing. And so the kids got upset about this and they said, well, we want to do something. What are we going to do? Well, we need to, you know, write to the president. And the teachers are like, okay, let's scale it back a little bit. We're not going that far. But they got their local representative to come in and the students all prepared presented their reasoning to this um, woman who was the, their state rep. And it was a great experience for the kids. Fast forward a year later, and the state rep responds to them and lets them know that the legislation was actually passed, banning this, the sale of shark products in the state of Virginia. So I think we undersell kids on what they can do and say, oh, well, they're just elementary school kids, and we got to prepare them for the future someday. And I believe kids can do meaningful work right now. Yeah, and you know, I think that's dead right, Mike. I think that you are in a position uh, as having seen some of these things in action and seen how powerful they are as to be an advocate for them. Um, I know that there is that breakthrough moment for educators when they have these experiences and they see the power of them that they'll never go backwards. And I mean, I've heard that from teacher after teacher, like after I went through this and I tried this, I would never go back to the way I was doing things. 
Um, tell me a little bit more about um, those pieces of project-based learning and really the parts that maybe uh, many people know as jargon or know on a piece of paper, but maybe those pieces that um, if not done well, um, you don't get those kind of outcomes like they did in Virginia. Well, there's a lot of misconceptions. I probably don't have time to get into all of them, but um, to me, there's a couple secret sauces, what I call them. And one is voice and choice. And that is you got to let kids own the learning. So in the example of the, the shark fin project that I just shared, the teachers knew where they were going with this as far as that they were going to study sharks, but they didn't just come right out and tell kids, hey, we're going to study sharks and why they're going bad. No, they led them on a process of discovering inquiry, starting with algae to learn about food webs, which eventually led to the sharks. So teachers are behind the scenes planting breadcrumbs of where we're headed, but kids are making the choices. And the kids and the teachers didn't know they were going to contact the state rep. The kids figured that out. And so giving students a chance to have choices along the way, which a lot of people are big on. But the, the big thing here, I think, that sometimes people don't emphasize is a voice. Letting students actually have a voice and meaningful input in their education is huge. And, that, and then get it out in the community. And so the other secret sauce after voice and choice is that community partnership. If they're just doing the work for you and it's going to get thrown in the recycling bin or, you know, you're going to have a lower level project with you, you know, you present to some uh, students who are younger or older than you. And that's all great. And I've done that too. But um, to get the highest quality of engagement from kids, you really need to tie it into a community partnership. Yeah, and you know, I'm seeing more and more schools, Mike, that have um, a director of partnerships. And it's not a director of partnerships to raise money, it's a director of partnerships to build authentic audience for our classrooms. And that's been a real shift uh, in some schools, and I know it's a luxury. Uh, we, we both have been in plenty of schools where, man, they just need a person to help teach reading. They'd be happy to have a couple extra subs. Uh, but these director of partnerships really do seem like a type of adult in the building that could be a catalyst for this work. Yeah, and that's a great thing. I have a friend who, who did that. And basically, he goes to local businesses and says, what's a problem you have that my students can help you with? And just pitches it to him. And this is the huge disconnect, I think, is teachers, I mean, business people are networkers. Teachers, this isn't necessarily a skill set that most of us have. It's not a strong skill set of mine. Uh, we you know, the old saying of shut your door and teach, we are not interacting with other adults. We're not out promoting ourselves. We're not out connecting to the community. And that's part of the skill to finding some of these connections. But it doesn't have to be a big deal. I know some teachers in rural Wisconsin who basically they're like, we have no one in our community to connect with. Well, the first and second grade teachers took their kids to a local farm and launched a project on, it was a cranberry farm because that's a huge industry in Wisconsin. And that might be the only business there, but they tied it in beautifully to a bunch of science standards uh, that they had their kids studying with plants and learning from their local industry. Yeah, I think it's really important as we think about this, uh, two things. One, that we think about our rural communities, right? And so many of our rural communities are seeing an outflux of people, people emigrating into cities. And if, if we can't show our kids through project-based learning, through service learning, through community action, that they have a meaningful role to play in their community, 
uh, it's going to be hard to keep them around. And so I think there's a, a multiplicative effect to kind of taking these projects into our communities and really uh, seeing uh, the power of what's available in our own communities. And the other thing is that I know many, many of our communities are really worried about the mental health of our students. And I think that that continues to be a growing concern. And I think part of the work you're doing um, is not only talking about uh, SEL as it relates to kind of um, these kind of big meaty things, but also taking care of our, our kids at that level too, the emotional level. Talk a little bit about how you see really well done PBL take care of some of the social emotional needs and mental health needs of our kids. Yeah, so a lot of people and experts in SEL see it as kind of a continuing and you do it in order. So you have to start with self-awareness and you really have to build some of the things like identifying emotions, recognizing strengths, self-confidence in, in kids. And I don't necessarily agree with that approach because I believe, uh, as Zaretta Hammond says, that competence precedes confidence. And so what we have, especially at the secondary level, a lot of kids who are disengaged in school because they're bored and then also they're not successful and they get into newer classes like algebra and they start throwing letters in math and they just, they lose um, confidence because they're not successful at first. And so when you launch a project that is engaging and gets kids involved and they get up in front of other adults and they explain their learning, the confidence just beams out of these kids. I have seen from my personal experience, hundreds of students who are terrified to even talk in the classroom, get up and lead a conversation after a year of experience in, in PBL school because they gain so much confidence. And so that real world, that real action that they do builds that self-confidence, that self-awareness because of what Zreda Hammond said, the confidence. You have to have something that you believe in yourself first. And so that's a huge uh, growth point, I think, of project-based learning. Yeah, I love that too. And so as we wrap up here, um, you know, help me understand uh, a little bit, Mike, about where teachers can start. Because this can seem daunting to think like, do I have to throw everything out and start over? Um, give, give us a couple of real practical things that uh, teachers, leaders can do to kind of support this culture and environment in their school. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it is a shift, and depending on your teaching styles, how big a shift it is. But the good news is you don't have to throw away good teaching because it's all in, all, all in the PBL framework. I would suggest that you start by reading some good books about it. Um, the best thing really is to attend the extended training. I sometimes speak at like a state conference for an hour, and it's always frustrating because I can't teach you how to shift your whole framework in an hour. So you need to go to a multiple day training and really get some solid stuff. And I'm national faculty for PBL Works and I consult on my own. So PBL Works is a great website that has lots of resources of forms and such on it. And I share a lot of stuff too, people interested in, in following me. Awesome, Mike. Well, uh, I will make sure that your contact information gets in the show notes here. And for all of our listeners, uh, Mike is both a, a great advocate for PBL, but also a great advocate for teachers. And I love his style and that he walks side by side with teachers in this journey and doesn't uh, stand above them, but really uh, 
gets in the trenches and makes sure that uh, teachers can leave uh, his training and his support uh, in a place where they feel empowered to do this work for kids. So Mike, thank you for being here. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. Good talking to you, and we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks for listening to the Help Me Understand podcast. For more about my work, you can head over to drrobertdillon.com or follow me on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to rate this podcast as it helps alert others to the great conversations and ideas happening in this space. Until next time, this is Dr. Robert Dillon reminding you that an intentional life is filled with awe, curiosity, and joy. Thank you.